Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks, of course, to Brady and Diana for leading us in worship. Those who worship him must do so in spirit and in truth. We are so thankful to be guided in that. I want to thank you all for your kind gifts and words of encouragement last week for pastor appreciation. I can't tell you how much that means to me and my family. Thank you very much. Well, some may notice that our beloved Grant and Tina are gone this week. In fact, we'll be gone for a few weeks on a very well-deserved vacation. And what an opportunity to not only embarrass them a bit without them here, but to encourage us as the body. And that is what the Lord calls his church. He calls us the body. And we use the term so often, I wonder how quickly we move past what it means. Why he uses that descriptive, that word, and the implications for us today. Grant and Tina Jones are one example of a dear couple that would readily that one would readily describe as indispensable to the body of Harrison Hills. And yet they would feel that by presenting themselves as a living sacrifice for the body, as Paul says in Romans 12:1, that they are merely doing what Paul describes as our reasonable service. And by referring to us as the body, it carries many implications. But amongst other things, it means that every member is meant to be indispensable. We can't do it without you. Your presence is not only rejoiced in, but your absence is felt and sorrowed for. Every part of the body is indispensable. We are called to be so integrated into the body that if we are missing, the body knows it. Say, well, pastor, that means I must be a pinky toe then. Well, very well, but you try walking without a pinky toe. You would be greatly hindered. That's why it's a body. Every member, every part is indispensable. You so serve and love and are connected to your community of believers that you are integral, that the body aches without you. It can't function to the best of its ability without you. The question, is that true of you today? Are you part of the body? Now, perhaps you may feel yourself unimportant, but what part of your body would you tell me is unimportant to you right now? What part would you give up? I bet not a single one. I bet even the smallest part is precious to you. Missing the smallest part would hinder your life, wouldn't it? That is how bodies are designed. So the question is, are you the body? The stats in most churches, as we've mentioned before, is that 10% of the people do 90% of the service. So guess what most churches have? They have a bunch of body parts laying around. Now that's great to have an arm and a leg sitting there if you need it, but it cannot serve its purpose until it is attached to the body. Every part, any part of the body is indispensable. Are we so ingrained in body life that our absence would be immediately felt? Are we limping because you are away? Well, in all of its beauty, that's how it's meant to be. We are not merely consumers of preaching. We are part of a body. And we take care of our body, do we not? 
We provide for our body. We dedicate resources to care for our body. We give of our time, talent, and treasure to the body. So I am so thankful for people like Grant and Tina Jones and so many others at HHBC that care for the body of Christ as if it was their own. What a privilege it is to serve and to give. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we completed our two-part series that looked at Jesus' incredible entrance into Jerusalem. And while it was incredible, we saw that amongst the waving of the palms, it was tragic. In fact, we titled the series, How to Miss a King. While this scene in the New Testament is the largest public outpouring and honor Jesus has allowed to be given to him thus far, we know that they are crying out to a different king than the one before them on a donkey. Nothing had changed in the culture or the heart of man. By crying out, Hosanna, they were hearkening to Psalm 118. The only usage of this word in scripture. And we know that it was a cry of desperation. And not desperation for their sin. Not being cry, not crying out to be made white where iniquity had stained them, but rather to be free from Roman oppression. They waved their palms as a sign of victory. The palm being the widely known symbol of the Maccabean revolt. Even the Romans often giving palms as gifts in military conquest. They committed the grave error. The grave error of seeing Messiah through the lens of their oppression. Rather than seeing both their oppression and the coming Messiah through the lens of Scripture. It is an idolatry that has persisted over time, and it continues today, does it not? We are reminded of the subtle way in which many approach Scripture utterly backwards. It is the error of reading Scripture in light of our situation or position instead of understanding our position and situation in the light of Scripture. And not only was this the tragedy of the crowd in our scene, but it continues to lead many astray today. As forces of cultural Marxism that seek to divide people over gender or skin color or sexuality, as it overruns our corporations and our universities and many churches, as it permeates every aspect of life, many Christians are adopting these worldly labels and reading their scripture as that label and as that category. Now they miss the king entirely. We reject divisive social categories of our day because there are only two categories of a person given to us in Scripture. Lost or saved. Born again or dead in sin. Redeemed or condemned. That's it. Scripture speaks to me as one or the other. The world is so desperate for a category to be defined with. Well, there we are. The only categories that matter. And it is through those categories that we read our scripture. Now we circle around the tragedy of this palm-waving crowd that missed the king before them because it is the tragedy of our day as well. So much closer to home than we realize. Who would have thought that being into our first full day of Passion Week would also be a look into the spirit of the age of 2022? And to put that principle into action, we view the spirit of 2022 through the lens of Scripture. We don't view Scripture through the lens of living in 2022. 
Beloved, apply this principle with rigor in your life and you will keep from error. If we do this, we would see that the terms brought by the crowd that waved the palms and that shouted Hosanna were not the terms of the king. Their Messiah was one of Judaic culture, not the one revealed to come in the Old Testament. The Jesus on the donkey before them came to defeat the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 tells us that's why he came. That was always the mission and the creed. If we have something or someone else in mind, it's a different Jesus. In only a few short days, this very same crowd would realize this was a different Jesus. As their military hero stood mocked and bloodied and beaten, talk about the ultimate case of unmet expectations. This same crowd will call out to crucify him. Jesus brings salvation on his terms. That's why the gospel call is not merely one of gentle invitation. With Jesus, the call to salvation is a command to surrender. It is a command for rebels to lay down their arms. That is not a king people are looking for. That is not the Jesus peddled from many pulpits today because it's not what people want to hear. Jesus' terms are not health, wealth, or prosperity. He bids thee come and die that we might live. Lay down your arms as rebels to God and pick up your cross as slaves of Christ. That's the gospel call. The call of Christ is not a call to self-fulfillment, but to self-denial. And finally, our scene closed last week with verse 11. A remarkable scene showing the greatest unknown inspection of all time. Jesus went to the outer courts of the temple and he watched. And he observed. And we must understand the depths of this observation. We must understand the fuel of the righteous anger that is about to be exacted on the next day. Of course, Jesus witnesses, as many men could, the, the money changers and the commercialization, the corruption, all of these things were part of it. But it's so much more than that. While Jesus witnesses all of these things, the prophet Jeremiah writes in 17 verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart, and I test the mind. He sees the heart. So while the corrupt money changing is lamentable, these are actions that flow out of the heart. He saw hearts that were just going through the religious motions. No true love for God or for his temple or for his people. One has to imagine that his observation of the hearts of men that yielded such a corrupt state in the temple fueled that just and righteous anger that was about to be exacted on the very next day. Now, for our timeline, recall Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was on a Monday. Yes, it was Palm Monday, not Palm Sunday. It was Monday of Passion Week, and that is now complete. They had returned to Bethany, where Jesus would stay that night and would now be returning on a Tuesday. This is March 31st, 33 AD, where we find ourselves this morning. And we begin a two-part installment this morning titled, a tree lies, a temple dies. 
As we march yet another day closer to Calvary, we will see Jesus turn his eye toward truth in worship. We will see Jesus not enter into Jerusalem and head for the nearest Roman garrison to sack them as the crowds waving their palms had hoped. But Jesus will address a far more important issue, that of the spiritual state of the temple, and by default, the spiritual state of Israel. These are the sheep Jesus came first for, and the condition he observed was worthy of complete condemnation. Not only a cleansing by the very owner of that house, but the foretelling of a complete destruction that was to come. So with that, beloved, let's look at our text this morning. Mark 11, 12 through 14. Mark 11, 12 through 14. And on the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree that had leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he answered and said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach yet another inspired text, given, kept, and preserved for us, Lord, that we might know you, that we might be changed by beholding it and applying it to our lives. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would go before us in this. We ask, Lord, that as we consider, as we hold the mirror of your word and your law to our face, that we might be changed that we might not go away forgetting what we have just witnessed. We pray you be with us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We have so much ground together so to cover here, so we're just going to dive right in. No opening story this morning. Beginning with verse 12. Here we go. I hope you all have your thinking caps on. This is not going to be a relaxed message. It is going to be one that will require your Brain to be engaged, very much so. Walk with me, beloved. On the next day, verse 12, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Now, a few points of theology here that are very important for quick review and reflection. Notice here at the end of verse 12, he became hungry. Now, that sounds so insignificant, but really we could camp on that all day. He became hungry. But why does this matter? Of course, we see demonstrated Jesus' humanity. We're reminded of the hypostatic union, aren't we? Which teaches us that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Fully human and fully divine. That there's no mixture or dilution of either nature and that He is one united person forever. We must understand, beloved, that His humanity was necessary for Him to be our perfect sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews tells us, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We see that Jesus hungered. We are reminded that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us 
He knew hunger. He knew thirst. He knew happiness. He knew sadness. Thank the Lord that Jesus became hungry. And so this kicks off our scene. Jesus' state of hunger is going to inaugurate something of a parable for us today. Something of an illustrative analogy, perhaps even a metaphor. Now, please note for our English gurus out there, we said parable, analogy, or metaphor. We did not say allegory. I do not believe Scripture contains allegory, so that is not to be confused. Now, this is now going to lead us into a sequence of events with both a fig tree and the temple that from a cursory look may look separate but they are very much connected. We will see that one builds on and one points to the other. So let us look forward in our text, looking to verse 13. Verse 13, let us see our first item in this illustration by our Lord. And seeing at a distance a fig tree that had leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. Now pause there. We have much to see. Now, at first glance, one might be tempted that we have a classic Mark and Sandwich on our hands here. We see the fig being a topic of discussion here in verses 12 through 14 here. Then what happens? We go to the temple cleansing. And now look down in your your Bibles, beloved, down in your text. And we revisit the tree again in verses 20 and 21. So that seems like a classic Mark and Sandwich, doesn't it? And one would be justified in thinking that if the stories were not utterly linked together, which we will see they are, it could be one. But as we will explore, both our figs and our temple are essentially pointing to the same event. One is preceding and pointing to the other. Thus, it is best to not understand this as a classic Markin sandwich, as we normally see. Dr. John MacArthur writes, quote, The fig tree is a prediction to the destruction of the temple by analogy. And the assault of the part of Christ is a preview of the destruction of the temple by action. Close quote. But before we dive into this phenomenon of the figs, this this verse evokes some, some really interesting questions on a very important doctrine that we cannot bypass. Look back to our text, beloved. We note again, Jesus seen at a distance a fig tree that had leaves. He went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. Now, when we read this, what is the question that naturally arises? What do you mean he went to see if there was anything on it? Did he not know? I thought he knew everything. I thought he was omniscient. Why is Mark writing as if Jesus needed to go check it out to see if there were figs? Now, some know where we're going with this. These types of verses evoke questions and speak directly to a doctrine that is known as kenosis. Now, don't check out on me. Hang in there. Hang in there with me. These are truths we need to understand. And I will, and I will explain why as we expound upon this doctrine. How do we answer the question, did Jesus know whether or not there were figs on the tree? Well, our answer lies first in Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Now, if we look to chapter 2, verse 7, it reads the following. Speaking of Jesus, Paul writes, 
But he, Jesus, emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. So the question revolves around this concept of Jesus emptying himself. This word for empty is kino. That's where we get our word kenosis from. So what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? There's all sorts of heresy that's arisen from this doctrine that's been fought for and contended for throughout the church age. But what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Does it mean that when he came to earth that he surrendered some of his divinity? Did he empty himself in the incarnation of any divine attributes? Did Jesus become some sort of lesser God upon taking on human flesh? What exactly did he empty himself of? What is the kenosis? On one hand, we saw in Mark 4, Jesus showing complete authority over the wind and the waves, didn't he? And yet here, we show him not knowing if there were figs on a tree. The Gospels show Jesus possessing all creative powers over life and limb, healing leprosy and raising the dead. And yet in Matthew 24, just as one example, when speaking of the last days, Jesus says what? But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Do we see where people might get tripped up here? Where bad Christology and bad doctrine might might arise. So what is it? What did Jesus empty himself of? Well, to get there, we must first look to Scripture to know what it was not. What did he not empty himself of? Colossians 2 verse 9 tells us, For in him, in Christ, All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All the fullness, all the deity dwelled in Jesus in bodily form. So what did Jesus not empty himself of? It was absolutely none of his divinity. And you cannot separate the divine from the attributes of the divine. God can never be more or less perfect or more sovereign, or more all-knowing, or more holy. If his divinity fully dwelled in Jesus in bodily form, it's all there. Nor was there any mixing of Jesus' humanity with his divinity in the incarnation. They're distinct and separate. Jesus' humanity did not somehow dilute his divinity in any way. Jesus did not exchange any divinity for humanity. We need to be abundantly and pedantically clear here. So we know what the kenosis, the emptying of himself, was not. It was not a setting aside in any way of his divinity. Fully God, fully man. Hypostatic union stuff, right? At no time in Jesus' earthly life did he cease to be God. His divinity was not like a thermostat that he could turn up and turn down. However, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus empty himself of? Well, he emptied himself of two things. One, he emptied himself of heaven's glory. He gave up glory. He veiled his glory as a part of his emptying. That's what's so incredible about the transfiguration. Do we remember that? The miracle was not in Jesus being transformed and radiant. That's his natural state. 
The miracle is containing that deity and glory in human flesh. That's the miracle. He gave up heaven's throne. He emptied himself of the glory that was due to him. The glory which he possessed that surrounded him. Which means, secondly, because he would abandon heaven's throne, because he would take the role of a slave, this means that he emptied himself of the privileges of heaven. In fact, the New Living Translation even renders Philippians 2.7 as, quote, he gave up his divine privileges. He voluntarily made himself nothing. Part of the kenosis was Jesus often choosing to operate within the limitations of his humanity. God never gets hungry or thirsty, but Jesus did. But Jesus did. So just as Jesus voluntarily gave up his divine privilege, his divine rights, or his ability to make his life easier or advantageous from using divine privilege, we know that Jesus lived a life of complete submission to the Father. Jesus says in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Meaning Jesus was on the Father's agenda. And if that agenda required Jesus to exercise divine privilege or divine right or divine power, Jesus would do it. If it required him to set aside that privilege, that he might walk in the role of servant and slave to identify with his humanity, then he would do that. The kenosis means in summary, while not being subject to the sin or the fallen nature part of it, that Jesus took on human nature. So did Jesus know there were no figs on that tree? I don't know. But if he didn't, it was not because he could not know. It was because it was not the Father's will for him to use divine privilege to know. So he would not know. But in fact, recall earlier in our chapter, we just saw Jesus exercise his omniscience about the young colt, didn't he? He knew exactly where it would be. He knew exactly how old it would be. He would know exactly that it had never been written on. But here, perhaps today, not knowing about the figs. Beloved, I know this was a bit of a deep dive, but I pray this helps you navigate those questions when you're reading these stories. Doctrine matters, beloved. If we were to get the kenosis wrong, if we were to serve a Jesus that, for example, gave up his divinity when he came to earth, guess what? We have a different Jesus. Only God can suffer the wrath of God and live to tell about it. We must understand this rightly. So I camped on that a bit because throughout church history and, and even today with pseudo-Christian cults, the fundamental error always comes in concerning the person, the work, and the divinity of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? We must get this right. People have given their lives in church history to defend these doctrines. So we must know and understand them. All right, looking back to our text now, verse 13. In order to glean the meaning and the intent of our Savior here, well, this is kind of fun. We have to first understand a, a few things about figs. We have to. 
Now, fig trees, of course, were plentiful all around Israel. They were grown on plantations, but they were also wild. You would find them growing everywhere. But even more importantly, figs have a very particular way about them during the growing season. And here we find our meaning. Figs are a bit unique in that when they bear fruit, that bud of the fruit is the first thing to appear on the fig tree. You would not see any leaves at this point. First comes the fruit, then comes the leaves. I'm not teaching you about horticulture here. This is the point that contains the meaning of the analogy. If you see a fig tree with leaves on it, what is it going to have? Fruit. Because the fruit came first. So if I walk by a fig tree, even if it's from a distance, if I can see that it has leaves, I can assume that fruit is there. But look back to our text. What happens in the last part of verse 13? And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. From afar off, this tree looked like it should have fruit, but when it was examined, the tree was a fraud. Those walking by the tree, everyone would think, there's fruit there. There is fruit there. There's leaves. There has to be fruit there. Until Jesus examines the tree. No fruit. But its leaves promised fruit, didn't they? Many theologians coined this the hypocritical fig tree. Because it advertised itself as one thing, but upon inspection was something else entirely. Indeed, all of Israel flouted their leaves. The temple was full of people showing off their leaves. But the king will come and inspect. And the king will come and eat of it. Jesus hungered for fruitfulness, for goodness and usefulness. Yet the tree was all talk. It was all show. It lured us in with the leaves because the leaves mean real fruit but nothing. I'm sure you're already drawing the parallels of what Jesus had already witnessed in the temple the previous day. Leafy trees all over the place. But it's just leaves, no fruit. Indeed, if we look at Hosea as we did this morning, in Jeremiah, Joel, and Micah, all over we see Israel symbolized as a fig tree. But there's much more to it. Let us look to Jesus' response here in verse 14 to the tree having no fruit. And he answered and said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Exclamation point. And his disciples were listening. Now hang on a second. This is what's known as the cursing of the fig tree, right? Most are familiar with this scene. But we see something glaring. Why is Jesus cursing the fig tree for not having figs if the preceding verse just said it was not the season for figs. Doesn't seem hardly fair, does it? We need to give some thorough treatment to this verse because this scene is a cause for some debate. And it's often used as a trailblazer for those that wish to disprove Scripture. Many notable and self-proclaimed atheists have used this passage, not only because of the apparent contradiction, but because of the supposed unhinged and unloving response by Jesus. The charge being that Jesus had some sort of temper tantrum because he was hungry and the tree had no fruit. 
R.C. Sproul recounted an essay written by very proud atheist Bertrand Russell titled, Why I Am Not a Christian. And he cited this narrative as one of his reasons for repudiating Christianity. Russell said that this incident displays Jesus as a man who expressed vindictive fury to an innocent plant, manifesting behavior that was not that of a righteous man, let alone the Son of God. Close quote. Of course, the heart that wants to suppress the truth in unrighteousness will always find a reason to disbelieve. And yet we are still commanded by Scripture to be ready to explain, to be ready to give an answer, a defense, an apologetic. God uses such things to draw men to salvation. And we are not left without answers here in this case. So what of it? How fair is it to curse a fig tree when Mark just finished recording that it was not yet the season for figs? Fair question. If we understand this, we will understand Jesus' response in context and his cursing of the fig tree. Now, logically, we know that fig trees produce figs. What is less known is that there is a precursor to the fig in the early season. Now, early in the season would be defined as March and April time frame, which is exactly where we are. Fig trees produce what are known in the Arabic as takish. Takish. These are small green buds that grow to about the size of an almond. And they were very edible, though they did not taste very good. The takish were typically reserved for those who were either very poor to eat or someone who was just super hungry in a pinch. But the takish, this small green almond, is not the fig. In fact, it matures and falls off the tree to the ground at the beginning of the season. It has its own life cycle. The actual figs won't come for another six weeks. Now the true picture begins coming into focus. Jesus has seen a fig tree with leaves only. Now it's not fig season yet, that's fine. But we should see Takish. We should see Takish. We should see our little green almonds. If we don't see those, if we just see leaves without the Takish, what does that tell you about the tree? It will never have figs. The lack of this precursor green almond is a declaration about the state of this tree, of its future. It is worthless. It has leaves but no tackish, meaning it will never produce fruit. And what should happen to a worthless fig tree? Of course, this harkens us right back to Jesus' parable, the fig tree in Luke 13. Listen to this. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him saying, sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and Put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. They cut down and destroy a fig tree that bears no fruit. Even after tending to it with long suffering and patience, it still bears no fruit. It is worthless. And we can tell you at the beginning of the season if it will bear fruit that year. We know. 
It can have all the leaves in the world. Doesn't matter. What Jesus is presenting is a declaration concerning the temple. It is utterly worthless. And this is the heart of it all, isn't it? Righteousness exalts a nation. But you cannot have the blessing of God on your nation with false worship, with blasphemous worship, or even more specifically for Israel, a works righteousness worship. Follow the religious rules, but are rebels in your heart. Adorn yourself with leaves, but no fruit. For the nation of Israel, their religious leaves covered their spiritual nakedness. They are barren. Many of you know, I I love to go hiking in the Rockies every year. And one thing we notice is that those with the skills are able to tell their elevation by the vegetation that's around them. Right? They can tell you exactly how high they are based on the plants. Jesus knows the spiritual altitude of the nation of Israel. He doesn't need for it to be full fig season to know that this tree is worthless. They lack tackish. They lack tackish. Even though it has all the leaves, it tells us that this tree must be destroyed. It will not produce fruit. So thus, to recap our question, is Jesus' response, Jesus' cursing of the fig tree for having no fruit, Some sort of petulant temper tantrum. Certainly not. He is declaring the truth concerning the state of worship in his father's house. And is there anger in his voice here that you pick up on? Sure. In fact, given what we're about to see happen in the temple, we know Jesus' disposition is that of a righteous and holy anger. So as Jesus curses the fig tree, Is it Jesus simply getting angry and wasting his power on a poor innocent tree? So many suppose. No. This anger and zeal has nothing really to do with the tree per se, or with his hunger, or with his hunger. And everything to do with Jesus' zeal for his father's house. This is, for lack of a better term, a living parable. It's a living parable. Jesus had already spoken this parable in Luke 13, didn't he? And now here it is in action. This is live. Jesus went to the temple yesterday and he just watched. He observed, did he not? And when the creator of the universe observes, his natural eye observed all the leaves. He saw all the trappings of religiosity. But look closer. There is no fruit. These people profess me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And this is going to be my focus, Jesus says. When time grows short for us as people, it has a way of sharpening priorities, doesn't it? If I were told that I had three days to live, wouldn't every day, every word be absolutely prioritized? Only the most important issues would garner attention, yes? Jesus knows exactly how much time he has. And where does Jesus turn his gaze? To his father's house. To his father's house. If judgment is to come, Scripture tells us that it begins at the house of God. 
Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What does that mean? If judgment is going to fall, why not destroy all the pagan temples in all the other lands? Theirs is a false god. Why does judgment begin here? Why will the temple of God be destroyed for a third time and all the other temples will remain? Why wasn't Jesus tipping over tables at the wicked temple of Pan back in Caesarea Philippi? Because judgment begins at the house of God. As a parent, do I discipline other people's children or my own? My own. If two kids are behaving badly, I will discipline my own. Because I love them. They're my responsibility. But only one is my child. The Lord chastens those whom he loves. The discipline comes down on his children first. If discipline and judgment is to fall, it is going to fall on the temple of God first. Beloved, if I walk by a fig tree, even if it's from a distance, if I can see that it has leaves, we assume that the fruit is there. Just as we might walk by a church, or in this case, the temple. It's a temple. I'm going to assume there is true worship to God happening in there. It's God's temple. It's in Jerusalem. It has leaves. There's te- they're telling us there's fruit inside. Today we have the tree that lied. It adorned and covered itself in beautiful leaves. Sitting alongside the road, it promised sustenance and life-giving fruit to weary travelers passing by. Go to that fig tree. It has leaves, and there we will find what we need, they think. But upon inspection, no tackish, so there will be no fruit. And as long as this tree remains in this condition, it will never produce fruit. I can tell you the future of this tree. No little green almonds. It must be cut down and destroyed. Here the king has come to inspect you, to eat of you, to be satisfied and pleased with you. Nothing but leaves. Time and again, nothing but leaves. Covered in religiosity, but spiritually naked. The result of this state, beloved, will bring utter ruin. Not one stone will be left upon another. God will not tolerate his name or his worship to be blasphemed. The Lord will inspect for fruit. Ezekiel mourned, son of man, the people of Israel are the worthless slag that remains after silver is smelted. They are the dross that is left over, a useless mixture of copper, tin, iron, and lead. What use is this? And even worse than just not producing, worse than just being a dead tree that's visibly dead to all, you are a lying tree. You adorn yourselves in leaves and deceive many along the way. Isaiah prophesied, I will turn my hand against you and I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. But watch what happens. I will restore your leaders as in the days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. 
And afterwards, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. But it cannot be without first tearing down that which does not produce. Dead religion, no life. There was a promise to be fed and to encounter God in this place. And all was a lie. This morning, there are dead temples open all over this country of ours that have adorned themselves in leaves. Well-funded churches with all the glitz and the glam and the programs. But is there fruit? The king will inspect. May we be found faithful this morning. Not just as a corporate body, but us individually. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. Do you not know, Paul asked the Corinthians, that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? What is the state of that temple? Do you put on a good show with leaves? Or is there real fruit? Only that which is pure, that can stand the test of fire, will remain. An inspection day cometh. May we be found faithful in his sight and upon his inspection. May we be a place, beloved, personally and corporately where weary travelers may find real food. Where our worship is sincere, where it is offered up in spirit and in truth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your spirit does now not reside in a building. But Lord, you have seen good and fit that your spirit might reside in men. Your temple in men. Lord, as we examine the mirror that you have put before us today. Lord, as you inspect our hearts. As you inspect our leaves. Lord, do you find fruit? Lord, good fruit that might abide. Lord, fruit and and metal, as it were, that may stand the refiner's fire, that may produce pure gold that is good and will stand. Heavenly Father, as we continue our march toward your incredible action in the temple, We ask, Lord, that it would be intensely personal for us as we view our own lives and our own hearts, this temple that you have made within us, Lord, that we would be found pleasing. Lord, that you would find good fruit upon inspection. Heavenly Father, be with us this week until we can meet again. In Jesus' mighty name.